Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. For trade, yeah. My guest today is Minter Dial. He is a of a bohemian. He has uh, written several books. He also has a documentary, The Last Ring Home. He has written books such as Future Proof, Artificial Empathy, and more. So tell me, how did you get into World War II, specifically the Asian Pacific Wars? So thanks for having me on, Erland. Um, so the story is I loved history from the very beginning. I was brought up in boarding schools in Britain in the very finest of traditions. And both at my prep school when I was seven to 12 years old. And then when I was at public school up until I was 18, I just devoured history. And, and there are a couple of people that were responsible for that in particular amongst the teachers. The first one was Colonel Ostock. Colonel Ostock taught me history at the old Malt House. And he had that sort of magnificent old mustache he smoked right. a pipe and had served in the Second World War. And so when you hear stories directly from somebody who had been in the war, this is back in the 70s, early 70s, they just come alive. And yeah. as a little boy, I was entranced by being able to talk to touch a, a teacher who had been in the battles. And then when I went to uh, my next school, secondary school, my housemaster was a history teacher. And I, of course, took, took courses from him as well as others. And, and uh, John Peake was his name. And he made us actually live history in the fields. So he would go and reenact on a, on a football pitch. And we would do things like the attack uh, on, on the British square. Sort of role playing. Exactly. But making you kind of almost live it. Those right. two people inspired me. And I studied modern history. And then finally, I've always kept an interest in history, but I didn't make it my job. Then, then, uh, then came along the idea of knowing about the person I was named after. Mm. And so my grandfather were, had been an officer in the Second World War, and I was named after him, but I knew nothing about him. And it turned out he was in a part of the war that we barely ever talk about. Right, which is yeah. the Asia Pacific War. Yes, yes, we talk about Midway. We might talk about, well, of course, we'll talk about uh, the Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Pearl Harbor. Harbor, but that's it. And then, of course, you know, we're aware of it, but the details, 95% right. of all history in the Second World War gets to focus on the Third Reich, the Western, the European theater, which touched so many people. And, and, and of course, there's the pogrom and so on. And the, and the ironic thing is that the, the Japanese, by 1940, uh, beginning of 1942, 
they were running one fifth of the world's surface. Right. And, and so that was a big deal. But anyway, so I, I came into it through the specific angle of wanting to understand what happened to my grandfather while he was out there because he didn't come back. So I ended up interviewing 130 veterans. Wow. I read about 300 books, uh, manuscripts, diaries, and, and the like in order to formally understand what happened out there and specifically to my grandfather. I imagine the climate was quite brutal over there as well. Oh, gosh, yes. I mean, it's certainly nothing we're used to. I mean, let's say the Philippines is nothing compared to the Papua New Guinea or the jungles right. uh, fighting, but uh, it was it, it's tropical in so many of these areas. And uh, it comes with all sorts of <clears throat> insects that are not so friendly. I find it, I find it quite interesting how Japan, Japan was this total isolated area. I mean, in such short time, they managed to become a world empire from industrial being isolated to industrialized and become this world empire as we well they were know. they were motivated they are very they get behind a cause and with great efficiency right and uh, i want to start with uh, so the so japan has attacked pearl harbor nine minutes just nine minutes after they attacked the philippines that's quite efficient and how did it go across to come in did they already have China or did they? All right, so, so the, the reality is the attack on the Philippines happened a little later. And the reason it happened a little later is because of a, a timing on, on the weather. The real attack on the Philippines was planned to be right after Pearl Harbor, right. but it ended up being many hours later and with with, by, by luck, if you will, uh, which meant that it was a much bigger success than it would have been had they attacked at the time that they had planned to attack. Because the Americans obviously got wind of Pearl Harbor immediately. And then they sound the alarms and right then they mobilize. But the Japanese didn't take off from where they were based, which was in Taiwan. And they were in the, the south part of Taiwan. Uh, yeah, in the south part of Taiwan. And they attacked they were flying off from a airfield there that would have been able to get in easily with bombers and fighters into yeah. the Philippines. Was the, was the Philippines an American colony or did it just work well with America? So it point? was a, not an American colony. That was over several uh, decades before. What they were was a, a very strong base for the, the, the Americans. And, and at that time, under General MacArthur, they had bases up around Manila in Luzon and down in the very south. They had uh, basically, unfortunately though, old equipment, whether it was the, the, the ships or the airplanes. They had these P-35As and P-40s that were very lightly equipped and certainly not at the standard of the Zeros and the more modern Japanese Air Force. But the Americans put quite a lot of money into the Filipino armies, is that correct? Well, it's all relative compared to what the Filipinos had in the budgets that they had. Yes, the Americans come with bigger, let's say, budgets. But it, ultimately, they had this base in the United States. Uh, and I'm, I don't remember the exact number of people who were stationed there, but it must have been in the 25, 30,000 
strong at the uh, during the build up to the to the uh, actual breakout with the Japanese, and they brought with them much better equipment than the Filipinos had, but they didn't. Uh, you know, they start. We were still in peacetime, as far as the Americans were concerned, and the equipment they had was oftentimes refastened World War One material. Right. And uh, of course, uh, sorry, me. Uh, so they tell tell me about the Bamboo Bolton. How did that? Did it, because Batana the word, Baton. Yeah. Right. Uh, what I, I think is interesting is to actually talk about the very morning of the eighth of December, nineteen forty-one, because this really sets the stage for the Battle of Bataan, which is the essentially the evasion and the, and the capitulation of the, of the Americans. Right, so try to tell me a little bit about the process here and how. Yeah, so the morning of the 8th of December, the when the Americans, I actually have in my possession the logbook entry of my grandfather wow. on the 8th of December, 1941, when he put in by, by ink pen on the side margins of the logbook, 0340 hours, heard word that hostilities with the Japanese empire have begun, we are at war. And so that happened obviously in the middle of the night, there were all sorts of rousings. And in the early morning, the United States Air Force available there scrambled and they sent off about 60 airplanes from the three different bases that they had in the Luzon area. And they went off in search of the Japanese patrols or the attack that they were expecting to have happen, knowing that two things. One is that those airplanes were not as well equipped and as fast as the Zeros that the Japanese had. And two, the bombers that were stationed and they were tuned more for defense, not for attack, which means that the bombers wouldn't have needed to be fitted out in order to be able to attack any incoming fleet. So in that they were bomberless, they also scrambled the bombers that were on base in order, because they had no bombs, in order not to be found, you know, vulnerable in, in the Air Force, on the, on the, in the airfield. So all these planes go out, and the Japanese who were up in, in Taipei area, they chose not to come because of low cloud cover. So they waited for three hours or so. Uh, in, at the end of the morning, the airplanes finish their sorties that run out of petrol, gas, and they come back to refuel. And it turns out that that was perfect timing because the Japanese by then, the, air the cloud cover had come up, they had taken off and they were just landing or just arriving in, in the Philippines. So they arrived essentially with the American Air Force plum on the ground, refueling, resting, changing teams and so on. Right. And as a result, basically half of the Air Force was wiped out in the northern part of the Philippines right then and there. Was it long, the Battle of Baltona, was it undertaker of Philippines? Was it a quick, quick affair or was it a long? Well, it depends who, from which perspective you take. But so we're, we're at the- Let's take um, from both perspectives to make- Right, because- yeah, in the end of the day, it was longer than the Japanese had planned by a long beat, and it was a, a shorter 
uh, affair than the Americans would have liked. Right. Because what they're trying to do, of course, is fight on two fronts. They'd have the European theater and the Asia Pacific theater. And uh, from the Japanese perspective, they just expected that their machine would just roll in and roll over both the Filipino army and the American army. They had little expectations of a, a fight back. And, and yet we're going into the jungle territories of Bataan. They arrive on the north and then they, they quickly stream down and then they hit resistance from the American army, army scouts and uh, available personnel from the Filipino army scouts as well. And these, they, they create a defense that little by little has gets pushed back by the Japanese. And it isn't until the beginning of April that the island, the peninsula of Bataan is taken. And the reason why that's important, basically it's a very strategic piece of the Philippines. And on the bottom of the Bataan is Manila Bay. And Manila Bay has in its middle, a little island called Corregidor. And that was also a very strategically located island because on it was some super large battery guns. And they had been around for a long time, very powerful, but they had only one big problem, which is they were only designed to shoot out to sea and they could shoot many miles. So it would have been perfect had the Japanese fleet coming in to decide to attack them from the uh, east, sorry, the west of the Philippines. Anyway, the, 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 uh, on the um, 9th of April, the Bataan surrenders. And when I say it was shorter than the Americans would have wanted, by the time, by the 9th of April, the, the men were on quarter half rations. They had suffered from a lot of malnutrition, disease from living in wretched quarters. And of course, the weariness of, of fighting in a jungle where you don't know where your neighbor or your enemy is and, and all that. Anyway, so these men end up um, are, are roughly 25,000 Americans end up being taken prisoner with all the, the Filipinos as well, who, who were, they're a much larger group of them. And did they have any concentration camps here at this point who was there? No, no. In fact, not only did they not have any camps prepared, they, they weren't actually prepared to take prisoners. And there are two things to that. One is that they, when they, when they finally made the victory, they hadn't thought through what happens when you've had victory. Two, the, the Japanese have a specific principle, which is called the Bushido principle. And the Bushido principle essentially, from a Japanese standpoint, says you fight until the death. That is the only honorable course for a soldier. So when these thousands of troops surrender, they were like, well, what do you mean you're surrendering? You're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to fight till the death. Right. And, and so they end up with this group of around about 60,000 men that are, are captured in the southern part, southern tip of Bataan. And like, what are we gonna do with them now? So in, in very fast order, what they decide is that they're gonna have to march them back up to two locations back up in Luzon, which is the northern prince of, uh, province north of Manila. And they have to march them back up there uh, on a 60 mile journey to two camps. One is called O'Donnell and one is called Cabanatuan. In fact, in Cabanatuan, there are two camps and, yeah. and there's one in O'Donnell. 
and they marched these men on what's called the Bataan Death March, 60 miles up to there and, and along the way, uh, there are thousands of men that are, that are killed, mostly Filipinos, although there were um, many thousands of Americans who also died uh, on that Bataan Death March. And what did they do with the prisoners when they arrived to the location? Right, so, so the, the Camp O'Donnell and then Cabana Tuan, they obviously had to build out the camp. And so they were doing this in a very makeshift way. They uh, allocated the men into their ranks. They, uh, I don't recall if right away the officers were given specific quarters, but right away they were made to work. Even though they had done this entire walk, even though they were on very small rations, because at this time the Japanese didn't have at all the logistics down for their food. So obviously they're gonna privilege the Japanese troops uh, soldiers who've surrendered are worthless, let them die, was basically their idea. And when they, when the soldiers arrive in O'Donnell and Cabana Tuan, the, the prisoners are dying uh, in, in the hundreds. Right. Through the did disease. they bury them or did they just let them rot? Well, so there were burial details. They didn't just leave them rot because A, that's unsanitary, and two, uh, uh, dishonorable. So whenever the healthy prisoners or the uh, prisoner would die, they would do these graves. And uh, often, oftentimes they, were, they had to be mass graves because of the speed with which at the very beginning, the sick and the, the wounded were dying. Right. And as you can see in the movie, for, and you can see, let's take a look at the title here, Bridge to Terra the concentration camps were quite brutal under the Japanese. Oh, well, well that is for sure. So. The, the truth is, as I said, with the Bushido principle, the notion of being a prisoner was you know, lesser than an animal. And the people who ran these camps, it was the least honorable thing to run. So the lowest part of the Japanese- It wasn't like in, like in Europe to run the Auschwitz, for example, or- Well, of course, that's a different type. The concentration camp is, is generally used for uh, the civilian type of, of, of uh, camps. The, these were prison camps, yeah. not considered concentration camps. And, and whereas the idea wasn't to kill them as opposed to the concentration camps, the death camps that you have in, in Europe, the, the method that they employed, which was work them, give them the bare minimum and treat them like they're lower than animals. And, and as a consequence with these, a lot of these Japanese guards who had huge chips on their shoulders for being considered the lowest end of the Japanese army. And the way it works with the hierarchy in the Japanese army in the second world war was that the, the, you could always be beaten if you were lower than the person above you, no matter who. And so this, this sort of group of misfits, if you will, ends up being running these camps some of them, of course, were you know not, not necessarily the worst in the world, but uh, and certainly there were some good Japanese guards. Yet the majority of them really came in there, and their role was work them, don't feed them, and so bad doesn't matter if they die. And the number that I have, although there's plenty of different types of numbers, but the 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 number that more or less accurate is that 42 percent of the prisoners the allied prisoners in the Japanese prison camps in the Philippines, 
die as prisoners. Yeah. So, uh, so what was it like in the Philippines during the Japanese occupation? All right, so once Bataan surrenders, then you have uh, one more month and Corregidor surrenders. And that happens May 6th with uh, General Wainwright. And, and that defeat, um, first of all, MacArthur leaves in the month of March and, um, and you've got these, this garrison in the Corregidor. They then are forced to retire uh, to surrender, sorry, and that's another shipment of, of prisoners that get sent up. Most of those start off in, in Bilibid in Manila and then go up to Cabanatuan. Now, uh, the ja then the Japanese, of course, uh, I think it's in the month of March, are also attacking Manila. And Manila is declared a free city, which essentially gives the open arms to the Japanese to come in. The Japanese take over administration, take over buildings, they do, they make an enormous prison camp in the center uh, behind the big walls, the Murales of Manila. And uh, it's a pretty treacherous place. One thing one can say is that the, the, the Filipinos were as a whole, very courageous, obviously lived under duress. They've been living under duress of many colonizations over the years, of course. And there's enormous number of them that go out and do resistance, even though all they go out with is a kitchen knife or their bare hands. They join guerrillas activities in Bataan, trying to help escape prisoners and so on and so forth. And, and they keep on a certain level of resistance that's quite notable. Are you comparing the Japanese occupation to a Nazi occupation or is it difference? Uh, well, I, I, I don't know if I'm equipped to, to say exactly how that's the same or different. I think there were lots of absolute miserable treatment in both cases because you have to imagine we're we're dealing with occupation of civilians women children and there are plenty of horror stories uh, about how that happens and i think that that's sort of what happens when you're at war and when you are you know villa you're you're the winner the victor at that time you kind of tend to take the rights that you think you're allowed to and and anything's allowed no as long as it's towards victory and so on balance, it was a miserable affair. Starvation, no more medication, all that reserved for the Japanese troops. So it was, but I mean, I'm not gonna compare, I, you, know, how, you know, how do you compare having an arm ripped off versus a leg ripped right. off? Right, exactly, yeah. I think they're both pretty horrible. And uh, there was, was there a lot of naval force around the Philippines, it's an island, was there a lot of like, Japanese naval? Our All right, course. so the, the Navy uh, is coming down uh, right behind these, this, um, the airfield attack because essentially the American Air Force is wiped out by December 10th. So December 8th is the main attack and then they keep on coming in and destroying as many of the remaining airplanes on the ground. The Americans sent uh, what, what they could of the airplanes down to the south where there was a base down in the south to try to rescue a few of these airplanes that continued to operate for a, uh, at least another, I'd say six months. Japanese afterwards send down their fleet. Then they have the men that land and that's then the Bataan battle uh, in proper begins. And of course there's Japanese ships that are coming in uh, on the west side of Bataan, bombing, ranging the 
Allied American, mostly uh, soldiers who were on Bataan. So they're being bombed by the, the ships. They're being attacked by land where they had tanks. The Japanese had many, much more equipment, much better trained and fed soldiers. Right. And uh, how does how does Naruto react to the loss of Philippines? Very worried at all or thinking about remobilizing and taking back right. the help the Philippine guerrillas and the, the resistance in the Philippines? All right. So the uh, answer to this is there's the narrative. And then there's the small detail and then there's the big picture. So these are three different things. So it's, if I start with the small, small details for the, the, the soldiers who were on the Philippines, they were told that the Americans were going to be uh, sending in reinforcements led by MacArthur. He, of course, was asking for this daily to Washington. Hey, I need reinforcements. And the Americans who were there were thinking, well, we're, we're going to be we're going to be safe. They won't leave us stranded like my grandfather. And uh, and then they're hoping that they're going to survive anyway. And and obviously and, you know, they expect that they're going to win because, hey, we're American. That was a sort of the idea. But very quickly, they see that it's not going to win. And little by little, it becomes very obvious that they are going to be defeated. There's the narrative. And the narrative was that we had to keep the hope up that there would be reinforcements. So you don't worry, keep on going. You can do it kind of narrative. Yet nothing was happening. And by the way, of course, they were busy. The bigger picture is that Roosevelt had to decide whether he was going to allocate split forces or dedicate to one. And the decision was made to go after Germany first and let, the, let them suffer the Japan way over there. The, 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 the decision strategically was, let's do one enemy we can't do on two, two fronts. And so the, whatever forces were then in, in, the, in the Asia Pacific, which were Dutch, English, Australian, and American, of course, some New Zealanders and Indians as well, they were left to their own means to defend what they could. And it turns out, of course, that the Japanese within the space of 12 months have dominated, have had strings of victories. And I've just rolled out partly through surprise, partly through dominance of numbers. And, uh, and they, they end up with one fifth of the world surface under their dominion. Right. And by the end of the war, how, how does the Japanese is it after bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, or is it before did, did they manage to fight back before? Right. Well, so it's a let's say by the summer of 1942, um, the the Japanese have done very well. They've overtaken Singapore, um, Burma. They they've taken over an enormous piece of property. But there's one battle that sort of sends a, a signal of hope. And that's the Battle of Midway. And that, that battle happens, obviously, it's an enormous air battle. It's also a sea battle. And it turns out to be to show that the Japanese are not invincible. It's right. declared an American victory, but that doesn't end the dominance. In, and uh, little by little, uh, the situation in Germany uh, ends up being assuaged and by the beginning of 1944, the Americans are able to dedicate a f many more resources over to Asia Pacific. 
uh, at that point, you have to understand that Australia believed that it was going to be invaded. In 1943, as I recall, I, I, I certainly don't know my facts all over uh, Asia Pacific, but in 1943 with the Japanese in Papua New Guinea, the, the, the fear was in Australia that the Japanese would invade Australia. Right. And so there was a whole lot of hand-wringing and worries about that. Were well. Japanese interested in Australia at all? Do you think they could have done it? Do you think they could have Well, I, I think, I don't, I, I think that they probably had uh, uh, imagination that they could do much more. And so, you know, let's call it delusions of grandeur that they could run the world, um, which sort of happens when you have this sort of overly expansionist, aggressive, colonialist type of approach. Right. And, uh, and, I, and I certainly think that they would need to at least control, if not invade uh, Australia, because Australia represented a base and, and they were a strong base and they had a, a very organized army and they had a reasonable air force. Uh, of course, nothing like an American force, but they, they obviously represented uh, an issue. Right. And um, when the Japanese retreats, tell me a little bit about the aftermath of the of aftermath of the Japanese invasion. How does this affect the Philippines after? Has this all right, so the, the Japanese are go down and invade all of Southeast Asia essentially. They they start bumping bumping into the Indians, which becomes complicated. Uh, they have of course been since uh, the nineteen early nineteen thirties uh attacking China, which is another important piece of that because China frontier with Russia. So what ends up happening for the Japanese is that they are trying to manage this entire space, including the Chinese, where there are, of course, pockets of resistance as well. And little by little, the, the edges start to fray and, and they, they, they bump into more resistance at the edge because you can't have the same force of hit as you go out and you have to dilute your efforts to protect a larger and larger circumference to your, to your uh, attack, you know, where you're invading. And uh, yeah, I think that's pretty much covers the, well, let, let um, me just uh, let me let me finish yeah, with what what ends to get to Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Right. Is, I mean, obviously there are many other battles uh, that start that take place um, in 1944 and 1945, where the Americans are now back in business and they started to push back. The Japanese logistics wasn't good enough. They weren't building their industrial hit wasn't good enough to replace the number of planes and men and ships that they'd started to lose, including, of course, their important uh, aircraft carriers. So the Americans come back in and they start winning various battles. Uh, they have one major one in the Philippines, which is called the Battle of Leyte Gulf in October 1944. And that was a very big deal because that was a, an invasion of a country as opposed to the little islands that were also horrendous battles like Iwo Jima. But they represented smaller pockets, if you will. In any event, in both cases, um, in any, all these battles, the Japanese defense was very frequently to the death. 
And it just makes it very difficult when you've got these very devoted soldiers who are prepared to do anything to survive and anything to continue killing until they're killed. And so the, the Battle of Etigoff in October 1944 represents the beginning of the liberation of the Philippines, which essentially happens around about end of January 1945. Right. Now we have the Philippines back, which represents a very solid base. We have the Battle of Iwo Jima in March of 1945. And we're now sitting in a situation where we're getting into enclosing Japan, where their forces have been pushed back. And the, the issue is, how do we make them surrender? And, and then it becomes the whole negotiation because they still have this idea of, first of all, we can win, two, that's fight until we die. And, and uh, the emperor Hirohito had, a, it seems, no desire to surrender. And lose face was the issue. And anyway, this is their, their big adventure. And so that's where you end up with the decision that, Eisen, that um, Truman has to take, which is to let go of the two atom bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And right. then, then you get the final surrender. And this was one of the most humiliating moments in Japanese history. That is for sure. And then, um, you know, there's, I mean, there's a small little detail, which is the, this remarkable moment where the voice of Emperor Hirohito is heard for the first time. Right. As he was on a radio and saying that this is, this is me my highness, and I am recommending that we surrender. And it was, a, it was the first time that the bulk of Japanese citizens had ever heard his voice. So that's a sort of a, a, a non-godly moment because that means that he's no longer some sort of imaginary deity, he's human. And I don't wanna call that a humiliation, but it's certainly a, a bringing down a grade of what is the emperor. And the last thing I would say is that MacArthur, who I, I tend not to be a big fan of because of his sort of histrionics and in the way he tried to play the role on film almost, but he was fairly remarkable because at this point, we also have to now say that we've got Japan under control. The issue are the communists and the Russians. Yeah, they didn't feel that Japan would become a communist country after no, they wanted, no, no, they really wanted Japan just as a buffer against the communists. That's why, so they, they felt, well, then uh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend at this point. They're an enemy to communism. Uh, at least that's the way they wanted to position it. So they, uh, what MacArthur did is he essentially wanted to establish a, a stronger rapport with the vanquished Japanese. And rather than humiliate the emperor, rather than attempt to humiliate further the Japanese, then comes the reparations, rebuilding and reconstructing a, an alliance with the Japanese in order to be a buffer against the communists because we don't have just Russia, we also have China. I'm not gonna lie, that's kind of ballsy considering we just dropped two bombs on yeah. the country. One of the biggest you, bombs in the world. Can you that's imagine kind of the negotiation? Yeah, yeah, can you imagine the negotiation? Hey, Ireland, uh, I know we just did that. We've just killed a couple of hundred thousand people, yeah, yeah, citizens. Yeah. Um, now, now, now we'll be friends. 
Well, and of course, it wasn't that way. Uh, for starters, there was also a, uh, a strong uh, vitriol uh, amongst the Americans and the Allies in general for the treatment that they had received uh, right. as victims of the Japanese aggressions for the, the preceding three, four years. So there was plenty of desire to get some, uh, some counts straightened out after uh, all that horribleness. Yeah, and they didn't want another World War One scenario where Germany right. rises again. Of course, just they're trying to think exactly. So you know, you don't humiliate them, make them destitute, and make them want to have a nationalist predisposition, which at some level we haven't totally gotten over with, with Abe in Japan. There, the way he was able to uh, galvanize the spirit of nationalism in Japan definitely harkens back to the Second World War and the right. need to regain an identity and a confidence. And that's why he, I think, amongst other things that he's done, has continued to go and salute the heroes of the Second World War, the Japanese heroes who went and bombed all the civilians and, and allied army everywhere. And these are people that, generally speaking, we're not in favor of. Right. And of course, that, that I think brings the bottom of the Philippines to an end. And, uh, and what I'm going to do now is I'm going to play the trailer from his documentary, The Last Week Home. Unfortunately, no video. I will put a link in the description so you can watch it yourself. And uh, yeah, here we go. Children of the greatest generation. I still feel that. I have a tremendous moral inheritance that I have to live up to. And honestly, it's hard to live up to. Very difficult for me to talk about my father in many ways. I get about halfway through and I break up, and so I, I really don't do it. So let me tell you the story about my grandfather. As you will see, it's much larger than his life. We went to the Naval Academy in 1928, and in 1934, it meets my mother. They had a growing courtship and loved each other very much, very, very dearly. Japanese have attacked the American Naval Base at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. My father's Navy base was bombed. We were totally unprepared for war. My grandfather is given a very risky mission. The ship started to sink. It was really hell on earth. My mother was looking after us. I was like five or six years old. She's writing these letters. My beloved husband. It's been a long time before she even found out that he was alive. She was distraught. My father was in the first hole. They closed the hatch. There was no air. There was no food. There was no water. 40% of the prisoners were killed in captivity. He takes off his amethyst, which he had kept with him for two and a half years in prison camp. Was anything about it in the end after that. He writes these memoirs, it's that moment that I must have lost the way. 18 years later, there's an excavation going on. They're digging. My father comes and he says, You won't believe what happened to me today. Oh my god, my best friend. We can understand why we didn't talk of anything else. It just became a family legend. So unfortunately, it's just phone audio. I didn't have time to connect it to the speaker. But how did you come across this this ring, and how did you come across to make this documentary? So, well, quite a long story, Ellen. But I can say that the the journey towards 
writing, doing the film was aided by some wonderful people, uh, including specifically my director, Josh Shelloff. And um, essentially what happened was, that I'm gonna give you a little bit of a story because it's kind of cool. I was in Manhattan on the 11th of September, 2001. And I was running a company that was very much a New York company. And so at some level, my company, I felt under attack by what happened. The World Trade Towers were outside my window. I saw the airplanes fly directly into them. I had four friends killed. And I had set up a meeting in the afternoon of the 11th of September, three months previously with a youngster who was at university. And uh, he went to Yale and I, as I did, and, and he said, I'd like to meet you just so we can chat. So we end up having a chat. We keep that, that meeting despite everything uh, at three o'clock in the afternoon. And we go to an Irish pub and we have some beers. So I, there I am 37, he's 23 or so. And, um, and we chat about life and I tell him the story that I had discovered about my grandfather. And he said, that is some kind of crazy story. Then 13 years later, 14 years later, I, I get a message from him. I hadn't seen him since. He said, hey, do you remember me? It's Josh. I'm like, um, not exactly. We met September 11 in New York at this point. I am living in Paris and uh, I get this message. And I'm like, well, this is crazy. Anyway, he says, I'm now 37. I've just done a, I've done three big films. I now want to do your film. And so that is how was born the idea of doing the film. And uh, I ended up writing a book that goes with it. Uh, also called The Last String Home. And the story really is a personal story driven around the story of this incredible ring that is a Navy Academy ring that my grandfather had and was the last object that he held before he died. And he gives this ring to a friend. He says, listen, if you do survive, keep this ring and show it to my wife and tell her that I loved her. He dies at that very moment and the ring, the man who, to whom he'd given the ring survives, but he actually loses the ring during the, the ensuing battles that happened and the trauma that's in January of 1945. And, uh, and the story of the ring then becomes, is a story of not just the ring, but the impact that the story has had on everybody who's aware of it, including of course, my father, because the ring ends up being found again in the most extraordinary of circumstances in another country by a way you wouldn't imagine with a timing that could not be more severe. And um, yeah, so it's the story of the ring. It's a story of love. It's a story of, of emotions that men don't always have. And um, yeah, it's a story of, of courage as well. Right. And uh, I've definitely been on the watch the documentary. And uh, do you have anything else you want to promote? Anything you want me to put the link in the description below? Well, or? thank you for that, Erland. Yeah, you know, the, the film itself and the book are available. The film is available on YouTube, 
on Apple TV, uh, on Google Play. If you uh, like history, there's a great television online platform for history called History Hit TV. And so my film can also be uh, viewed on History Hit, which is run by Dan Snow. The book is available on, is a hardback book, um, which has a very different and much fuller picture, of course, than the half hour documentary. That's a VOD video on demand. And the book is available on, on all sorts of uh, e-tailers, like uh, even in Norway, I'm pretty sure. Um, uh, you mentioned Ark. that the book is being translated into Norwegian, well, I, actually. I would love that. Uh, my, um, my second book, funnily enough, uh, as I told you, Erland, has yes. my second book, Future Proof, is available in Norwegian. Um, it's a hardback and it's available on several of the uh, e-commerce sites in Norway. So I'm very excited about that. And I'll certainly send you the links for you to put that into the show notes. Please and then finally, finally um, I'm excited about bringing out my newest book, which comes out in January um, 2021, January 3rd. It's called You Lead, How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. And, and whether it's in the army, in a uh, startup or in big enterprise, I think there's a lot of, of important changes that need to happen in the way we lead. And this book is hopefully a, a stone in that edifice to try to make and allow for people to be, have more fulfilled lives as leaders, making more sustainable businesses. And what I mean sustainable, successful, longer term, and ideally for the good. And if people want to reach out to you, is there any social media where people can find you? Well, the, I'm very active on Twitter at mdial, M-D-I-A-L. My website, I write fairly frequently, is minterdial.com. I've been podcasting since 2010. My podcast name is called Minter Dialogue, and I try to meet uh, super interesting uh, entrepreneurs and authors and personalities on my website, which I, I'd be doing on a weekly basis. I've just finished my 10th year anniversary. Mm, congratulations. And, and, and that, yeah, that's uh, 500 episodes under the bag. Otherwise, um, yeah, are you you, you type in Minter Dial and you'll find me. Perfect. And thank you so much for coming. And it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Likewise, and, uh, Ireland. Yeah, next week, tune in. Talk. Next week, we'll be talking about the history of science. And uh, we are also available on YouTube now. You can find us on any most of the podcast platform. If you like this episode, please like, share, and subscribe. And we'll see you next week. Thank you very much. Uh. Stop recording. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.